0: And today we are rewinding back to September the 24th, 2019, originally episode 2516 of the Survival Podcast, and it was titled Total Lifestyle Health for Modern Survival. I thought this would be a good one to leave you with, and you'll notice a theme as you go forward with this Rewind series. Basically all of the episodes are from September, October-ish of uh, the year. Right. And then each of them goes back a, a year or two. So the yesterday, not yesterday, Mondays was, uh, from 2022. This one goes back to 2019. But now we're going to go back. Tomorrow we'll go back to 2018, 2017, 2016, like that as we complete the series. So same time of year, similar discussion for the seasonality if there is any, and just dropping back a year each, uh, each, uh, episode in the series. I thought that would be fun and different and give you a little bit of, uh, Little variety on kind of the temporal issue with these rewinds. Anyway, uh, today's episode was very well received back when it was done. And it was about 10 key aspects of total lifestyle health. And it was about the fact that there's a lot of, we throw the word healthcare around a lot, right? We, we talk about healthcare. But we don't really talk about health as a holistic thing. The health of an organism is not just its physical state. And a physical state can be affected by some sort of toxin, some sort of invader like a bacterium, right? But it can also, it, it tends to be actually more affected by other aspects of a person's life. If you stress a person enough, you can kill a person with stress. Scientists that are kind of twisted people have literally stressed mice until they die, just to see how what you have to do to, to get it to happen. So I came up with 10 areas that we can judge our health, our total health quotient by. And number one was emotional. And emotional health often gets wrapped in with mental health. And they're different things. They certainly, all of them interplay. But emotional health, you can be a perfectly sane person with no conflicts in in your mental cognition. And you can be completely out of sync with emotion. You can be completely uh, devastated by emotion at times. And is that... Emotional health dip, a temporal emotional dip, somebody loses their life partner after 30 or 40 years together, they're going to have an emotional health dip. In fact, they have to have the dip so they can heal. But then there's long-term emotional problems. Mental health. For all the discussion about mental health, we really don't do it very well. And what we don't do is teach people self-mental health care how to have internal dialogues, how to think about things, how to evaluate your situation. I think one of the reasons that people who, as they get older, if they separate from others, and they have a lot of mental health issues and they start to believe things that aren't true, etc., is simply if they're alone and they live alone and they never talk to anybody else, there's nobody just basically check you on your own bullshit. And I think that we have to be careful, especially in the prepper space with our mental health. There's a lot of jokes about crazy preppers, and we're not. But it can lead, that that can be the dark path. We talked about that in a recent episode. Physical health. This is the one that a lot of people talk about. But we talk about physical health as though physical health is simply access to enough doctors and medicine to be physically healthy. That's not physical health. In fact, there's a lot of very unhealthy people who have personal relationships with their doctors. They're, they're the doctor so often they know their doctor better than they know the teacher that teaches their kids in school. Spiritual health. We often think, I think there's a lot of people out there that think spiritual health doesn't apply to me because I'm not religious. Spiritual health is about the innate spirit of a human being, and that's health. And that can be a very religious experience for some people, a very metaphysical experience for others. But spiritual health applies to atheists, and I cover that today. Occupational health. So, how healthy are you in your occupation? This is something we don't talk about. And there's a couple different ways that we come at this one, and it's actually really important. Intellectual health. There's plenty of smart people who are have been made stupid, i.e., Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity. Intellectual health requires that we're able to entertain an idea without adopting it. That's something that, like, on, on the like, if I was judging the average health of the average American on a scorecard today. And that doesn't mean you in particular, but it's just like the average person pick 50 people off the street, aggregate average, and give them an A to F score. I think intellectual health, I would be kind if I gave a D+. I think I'd be overly kind giving a D+. I think it, it borders on being an F, the intellectual health of America today. If we judge it on it's a, your ability to process things when they don't quite jive with what you expect. Preparedness health, D- Probably the average American would get a D on preparedness health. Hopefully you guys fare a lot better. But boy, um, you know, this episode was done before the, before the scamdemic, before the Covids, And the Covids revealed that there was a lot of poor health preparedness, poor preparedness health, in, in, even in, among preppers. Because what happened wasn't even really that bad from a supply line thing, but people really freaked out over it. Environmental health. I'll let that one speak for itself when I get to it today. And adaptive health. Might be the most important, important of the ten. And I that's why I put it last. And at the end, we're going to ask you to grade your total lifestyle health GPA. And this is one of those episodes that, like, I didn't really think of it this way when I did it. But when I got done with it, it was one of those ones where you sit down and you go, yeah, our school system sucks. This literally should be one of the things that if you're going to go to school, paid for with taxpayer money, for 13 years, K-12. This discussion should happen. I had a health class in, in school. I had health class in junior high. I had a health class in high school. They taught us how condoms worked. They talked a little bit about like not using drugs. Some other stuff like that. We had some first aid courses and stuff like that. I never heard anything about my emotional, mental, physical, spiritual, financial health. None of that stuff. Like, Don't you think that actually building a society of people who are able to self, self-assess self these 10 points of health in their life and continuously work on making them better, would be a good thing for society if you actually wanted good things for society. But I want you to think about this in a different way as you go through this episode, this rewind. What if you make money on people having poor emotional health? What if you make money on people having poor mental health? Let me, let me change that. What if you make money and or gain power by people having poor emotional health, mental health, physical health, spiritual health? Financial health, occupational health, intellectual health, preparedness health, environmental health, and above all, poor adaptive health. What would you want to do then? You don't want people to die. Your livestock, folks, they don't want you to die. If the chicken dies, you don't get more eggs. If the cow dies, you don't get any more milk. Matsai cattle dies, you don't get any more milk and blood. That's what they. That's the best. The best analogy to the the modern human. In regards to the the, the oligarchy and, and it, its its fascist relationship to the state, with me would be the Motsai's cattle. The Motsai don't want to kill a cow. It's not because they're against eating meat. Kill the cow, it's gone. Poke a hole in it, drain the milk, uh, drain the blood into the milk, and mix. You got a great mix of, of of carbohydrate, protein, and fat. And you still have the cow. So you don't want the cow to die. You want to maintain the cow. At a cow maintenance level, that makes the cow docile and easy to milk and easy to bleed. You want a nice, tame, calm cow. So you want, you want a failing grade on all these health issues, but not enough to kill the patient. If they die a little early, that's okay. There's always new, new cows to, to, to milk and bleed. But poor health is advantageous in a society that preys upon people. And a society that profits from poor health. Yeah, we should be teaching this to our kids and they're not going to. So I advise you guys to enjoy this rewind. Think about teaching this to your kids however you see fit. With that, let's go ahead and rewind back to September 24th, 2019, originally episode 2516, Total Lifestyle Health for Modern Survival. Uh, talking about my 12 types of health for total lifestyle. I'm sorry, 10 types of health for total lifestyle health. Uh, let's start out with, well, what exactly is health? What does that mean? Uh, a standard medical definition, and there's several versions of this, but if you act, ask a doctor, one version he might give you is the absence of disease. And it's interesting that when we start actually tearing words apart and thinking about what they mean, uh, we learn even more. So what does disease mean? That means you're sick, but what does the word mean? Well, the word actually it comes from two: dis-ease, to not be at ease so whether that's from an illness or an injury or some other form of problem we could have a mental disease mental disease right we could have a stress based disease we could have a situational disease so it may not always be a biological thing but it is to be in a state of dis-ease. It is, it is, the absence of the state of disease would be a healthy state And I find that very limited, and one of the things that I often say about doctors, and then I'm challenged on and when people check into it, they find out I am right, is that doctors are given almost no training whatsoever when it comes to what health is and how to be healthy. Uh, A mental, you know, a doctor that is a psychologist or or something like that may have a lot of training in that aspect. I'm talking about medical doctors that practice, you know, general practice medicine, surgeons, uh, ER physicians, et cetera. They, They get almost no actual training on real-world world, real world health. There might be a course or two that has a has a little lip service to it. Um, but you have to think about the fact that a doctor will spend um, somewhere, depending on what type of specialty they're going into, 11 to 18 years to be fully certified. Some surgical internships and, and fellowships that go with them before you are actually 100% on your own can take up to 18 years. So that's college medical school, internship, and maybe some fellowship years. Uh, The minimum is 11 to be a fully practicing MD on your own. Um, They do four years of college, four years of medical school, one year of um, residency, and uh, two years of internship. That's incredible dedication, and I don't put doctors down. I don't mean to put it down, but you would think somewhere in there they might have a little bit more understanding of total Health, And so I say that only because I think the the concept that health is simply the absence of disease is is very limited. A better definition, and this is a Merriam-Webster's definition, a condition in which someone or something is thriving or doing well. I find that to be a much better definition because now we actually include all living things or maybe even an ecosystem. In front of me right now is a 55-gallon fish tank. It is a healthy aquatic ecosystem. It's relatively small for an aquatic ecosystem, but there's like 15 varieties of plants, about 15 varieties of fish. The fish are healthy and vibrant. They're swimming around. The plants are vibrant. The system is well-balanced. Everything is working the way that it's supposed to. It's a healthy system. But what I would add to that definition would be, and able to maintain that condition indefinitely absent specific catastrophic events. So my fish tank is only as healthy as my management of it. If I leave it completely alone, water will evaporate, toxins will concentrate. I have to actively manage that ecosystem. It is not large enough to be a self-managed ecosystem, like, let's say, a a marsh system. A marsh system can manage itself. An absent a catastrophic event, like somebody spills oil in it, it will manage itself indefinitely. A human being is a living organism, and like all living organisms, has a life cycle, including death. So a catastrophic event would be death. And eventually, age will catch up with all living organisms, and we will slow down, and we will enter a dying process. We don't all die of a heart attack in our sleep, or while running a marathon, or while hit by a car, or whatever, um, Some of us actually just go, and we don't all die of cancer or Alzheimer's. Some people actually live a really long, healthy life, and they just eventually reach a point where their body begins to slow down and they enter a a natural dying process. I would consider that a catastrophic event, death. Uh, Sometimes people get cancer. So you can maintain things until the point that you have a terminal, untreatable cancer, and then you are no longer fully healthy. Now, how healthy you are will determine whether or not you can actually fight a cancer that other people say you can't. And all of these forms, these 10 forms of health, will make it more likely that you can get through that battle, but sometimes you can't. If you're driving down the road and you get hit by a gravel truck, that is a catastrophic event. You can have perfect balance, straight A's in these 10 aspects of health, and that catastrophic event ends it. But otherwise, anything that's not completely catastrophic... If you're truly healthy, you should be able to maintain that condition, or if you fall out of it, rapidly regain it almost indefinitely, if you're truly healthy. Does that make sense? I want to talk real quick before I give you the 10 types and give you a little bit on each one as to why I'm doing this show today. Well, number one, this is the survival podcast. The number one rule of survival is don't die. Wake up alive tomorrow. You have passed rule number one, right? So being healthy is a good way that we stay alive, but... I have the podcast. I have the, I have the, I think I have the enterprise, right, of all businesses in the world with the the best and at the same time the clunkiest and worst tagline in history. I almost did it on purpose because of arrogance, honestly. But helping you live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. If I wanted to sum up what health is is being able to live a better life. If times get tough and even if they don't. So we, when we look at modern survivalism, we don't take the the world is going to end approach because if the world is really going to end, and you know the world is really going to end tomorrow, and of course I don't mean actually pff, it's gone, but you know a catastrophic meltdown, global pandemic, eighty percent of the planet dead, all sit, like like doomsday prepper level shit, a comet um economic complete collapse of the United States leading to global economic collapse, people eating babies. Like if that's really what's going to happen in the next two weeks, and you have two weeks to prepare for it, the things you should do are some of the worst things that you would do um, if life goes on, even with some, some minor catastrophes, right? To be the worst decisions you can make. So we find a balance of preparedness for the worst, but an expectation of the best, right? And that's what health is. Health is a balance. An organism or an ecosystem of organisms in a state of disease is unbalanced. Right next to my beautiful fifty-five gallon community tank that's been running for three years, and I haven't done a water change by the way in a year. For those of you that keep fish, to understand how balanced that system, all I do is once a week I fill it up. That's it, and it looks breathtaking. Over to my left is a little ten-gallon tank that I was breeding shrimp in. That I did not get everything right. It's full of algae, and the algae is actually kind of dying back as I have let that system rectify itself. But really, to make it look beautiful the way I want to, the best thing to do is to drain that tank and rebuild it because it's out of balance. It's not unhealthy from a standpoint. Of everything that's in there is alive, and the, the shrimp are and are happy and healthy, and they're still breeding. They're good. But it doesn't look nice. It's not the type of health I'm looking for, because it's out of balance. So health is about balance. An unbalanced body will have illnesses. A balanced body will have very few, not none. And as we go into this, I want to start out with a quote. I have a quote of the day for you again by one of my all-time heroes in life, Masanubu Fukuoka, who's best known for his farming methodologies in Japan and his method of farming he called do-nothing farming. Um... But this quote has really not much to do with farming, and I think it has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about today. This is in his book, One Straw Revolution, and that book is worth reading more for the philosophy than for the advice on how to farm. I'll tell you that. And this is what he said about doctors in medicine and schooling. Doctors in medicine become necessary when people create a sickly environment. Formal schooling has no intrinsic value, but becomes necessary when humanity creates a condition in which one must become educated to get along. Now, I don't actually think that Masanobu Fukuoka hated all forms of school. He was a highly trained scientist before he walked away from it to live on top of a mountain. He was uh, in the Japanese agricultural uh, department. He had... I mean, about one step away from a Ph.D. But you could see where he would develop some contempt for education when he learned more by simply sitting on top of his mountaintop and farming the way nature showed him how to do than he ever did as one of you know, Japan's high-level agricultural scientists. And I don't think he had zero appreciation for doctors, because I know for a fact that when he became ill, he went to a doctor. But the word that's key in here is necessary, and I think there's an an impl- implicit component to this of frequently, right? So doctors may be necessary because you got hit by a car. That's not a sickly environment. I guess it's not good. It's certainly a state of disease. But when people constantly need doctors in medicine, it's it's environmental. Because we live for most of our lives without what we think of today as medicine and doctors. And most people, if they didn't die of starvation or get shot or get killed by a bear or something like that, lived relatively long lives. If People 500 years ago who had a reasonable diet and didn't die in childhood lived on average almost exactly as long as they live today with all our medicine. I've proven that in the past. Right Now, so we have created a situation, that's what Foucault is talking about here, where it becomes necessary that people have like personal relationship with doctors. And schooling to the point where it is nothing but indoctrination, that's what he's talking about here. And then if we actually did completely remove them, I want you to think about another quote. I think it was General Custer. It was some U.S. cavalry officer who spoke of the Native Americans before they were all you know, pushed onto reservations and all, with lament and said, never have there been a people as free as these. They didn't have formal schooling. They didn't have what we think of doctors and medicines. And if you think about some of the indigenous peoples that are left, that have actually been left alone, there's very few of them that live in balance with their environment. They're the happiest, contentest people in the world, and they have very little of anything that they need. So there is a place for balance within an understanding, because it's modern survivalism, all the great things that are available to us today because of technology, and at the same time, the simplicity of balance. So think about that as we go through these today. So number one is what I call emotional health. and emotional health, a lot of people blend that with mental health, which is number two. It's not the same. Emotional health is not just your mood. And being able to be relatively happy most of the time. See, I think being happy all the time would be bad. Talk about a way to ruin your life. Have you ever been around somebody that's like always on, on full number 10 happy? They're they're really, they're they're like salt. They're great in small doses with other people mixed in. If you have to spend time with them nonstop for like a day, you want to jump off a bridge and kill yourself, right? So emotional health is about being able to have a positive attitude overall, but the reality that you're going to have ups and downs and being able to deal with them. But emotional health is also about being able to act appropriate for your age. And a lot of people that say, well, i got a job and all. They don't understand that there are places where we come out of our emotional health, generally because we're unbalanced in some of these other areas of health. But the classic would be the midlife crisis. Guy's 46 years old. He comes in touch with his mortality um, looks at his wife, realizes he's not getting any younger, but you know the, the, his marriage is not really what he expected. Next thing you know, he's, he's got some mistress somewhere, and he's driving a sports car, and he's acting like he's 25 again. That is a lack of emotional health. That doesn't mean you can't have an exciting and engaging life, but if you do it through reversion, that's not strong emotional health. And there are many other aspects to your emotional health, and they involve how you are able to interact with other people. People without a good, strong emotional health have a hard time building lasting relationships. They, they fail to trust other people because they don't control their emotions. When somebody says, I don't like to get close to people because it hurts too much when I lose them, that means you're not able to control your emotions There is always a risk of getting close to people. There's always a risk that they could wrong you or leave you due to circumstance or intent. But living alone is not good for the emotional state. So a strong emotional health is necessary for balance. Moving on to something that's similar but different is mental health. Mental health is both the absence of dis-ease, a mental disorder, and then the positive mental outlook that builds up your emotional health. You're going to see that all of these dovetail into each other. Because they are total health. So they're all one thing, but they're all pieces and parts. Okay? So mental health, if you have any sort of legitimate mental disorder, I think that it is a really good idea to start with counseling before medications. Now, I will say this. As much as I don't like Big Pharma, there are some people that have legitimate mental disorders, and I think that long-term counseling good nutritional health, good balance, can can fix most of them. There are a few that maybe just absolutely require pharmaceuticals, and some that maybe need pharmaceuticals while that other stuff is being done. But I think that's the last place to go for most of the people. It might be the first place to go for some of the people. So I don't make medical decisions. I don't make medical calls. But, I mean, anxiety is the number one mental illness in America. And I find that to be ironic because I think a lot of times people decide, well, I have anxiety, so I have a mental illness. Anxiety is normal. A constant state of anxiety isn't. And anxiety over things that really aren't that big a deal is also not normal. So if I get a letter from the IRS that says I'm going to be audited, I'm going to have anxiety until I meet with my accountant and my attorney and we go through things and we organize things and we get ready to deal with the audit and we self-audit. That's going to reduce my anxiety, but I hate the government and they have a lot of power, so I'm still going to have anxiety. And I'm going to have anxiety when we're going through that. And I'm going to have anxiety until we are done and it's resolved. And even after that, I'm probably going to have some lingering anxiety until my body drops the cortisol, et cetera, and gets back into a state of ease, right? Getting a IRS audit is like, you know, getting a proctology exam, you know, in the most uncomfortable circumstances in public, right? It's kind of the anxiety that you would have. So anxiety itself is not bad. Anxiety without a cause is the real problem. And that is a mental dis-ease, mental disorder. You are not balanced the way you should be. And that is something that needs to be processed through. But we need to figure out what we need to do to make that go away. So they say it's a problem, it's bad, I'm wrong. That's like the worst approach that can be taken to that. Then there's also like anxiety that people self-medicate They don't even understand that medication may be causing the disease. So I've heard somebody recently tell me, well, I smoke. Um, Well, I went to vaping. But I use it to deal with anxiety until I can get past some things in my life. Odds are you don't use nicotine to deal with anxiety. You have anxiety when you don't use nicotine because you're addicted to it and you go through symptoms of withdrawal when you go too long without it. The solution is to eliminate the nicotine from your life and its dependency. And then you will be able to deal with anxiety. And if you truly have anxiety beyond that, the nicotine, which is a toxin, is not healthy as a way to deal with it. And you need to find a way to deal with it that is far more healthy. Anything that's addictive is not a good coping mechanism. Okay? Because if you use a coping mechanism that is addictive, you will become an addict. Whether it's food, whether it's a drug, whether it, it doesn't matter. Whether it's an emotional uh, dependency, whether it is a psychological dependency like a pornography addiction. All of those forms of addiction are mental disorders and they're generally caused by a, a first mental disorder. So we need to find the root cause and deal with that. And that's why I say that like mental health, if you have actual problems that are screwing up your life, it's best to see a mental health professional. And to find one who believes in working through the problem rather than just medicating it. And many of them pull out the prescription pad in the first 15 minutes. And generally the substance they're using is addictive. So I don't like those people. In fact, I much prefer a counselor that cannot write a prescription is the first step. Because since they don't have the tool, they'll use another tool. And most of those people that are good at what they do will say, hey, this is a place where I think maybe we need a little bit of a medication if you really have an actual need. And I would rather have you, if you do need a medication, referred to someone for the medication management and the non-drug prescribing practitioner handling the long-term management, including this is how we're going to get you off that substance. So that's the problem side of mental health. But mental health as a whole is an awful lot about attitude. So people get angry when you say, well, if you're depressed, take a walk. Because they say, you know, depression is a disease. Well, clinical depression is a disease. Depression, much like anxiety, is a symptom. It is only a disease when it becomes chronic. And it's often the case that a symptom treated will not become chronic. And feeling depressed and taking a walk is a good course of treatment for the symptom. Now if you get sick and you have an infection a bacterial infection a doctor may prescribe tetracycline or ampicillin right an antibiotic that treatment is it may or may not actually kill off enough of the bacteria for your immune system to take over and make you well again but it is a legitimate treatment okay and it's worth doing before we get some kind of radical antibiotic therapy that can wipe out all of your you know, your your healthy immune system. Like, that's a last resort. That's how I think things like depression, anxiety, etc. need to be treated. Take a walk. Take a walk. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I've seen so many people in a state of depression, you say, take a walk, get a hobby, go go out, get up, whatever. And I understand some people are in a state where they really need help because they can't. But... Most of you can. And it's amazing what happens when people do that. Get outside of the door. Go do something. And it might not make you feel perfect, but it may make you feel a little bit better. And that will lay, open the door to do a little bit more. And again, this all overlaps because we get a physical health next. If you're super fat and you're depressed, you're probably fat because you're depressed and depressed because you're fat. Right, So if we get healthier physically, we lose some weight, we get more active. And I've seen so many people that have completely let go of psychological and and psychoactive drugs just by becoming active. Again, I'm not saying it works for everybody. And if you send me a hateful email saying that I'm saying that, I'm going to delete it and not read it. Because I can't be – I'm actually taking way too much time on this because I don't want to hear the bullshit. Okay? I'm not saying this works for everybody, but I'm saying if you haven't tried it, shut up and try it, and it just might help. And every little step when it comes to improving your mental health is what enables you to take the next one. So that's as much as we're going to talk about for mental health today. Physical health. Physical health is the overall health of your entire body. And even though we're separating the mind in this this piece you cannot have a healthy body if you do not have a healthy mind. You really can't. Now, a doctor might say that you do, that this person has a, a bipolar disorder or something like that, and but, but physically they're fine. They're not. They're not. And, and my response would be, then why are you giving them a drug? <laughs> what they'll say is there's a chemical imbalance, which there may or may not be. Uh, this, this is a very difficult thing to prove, Um, It's a theory that there's a chemical imbalance, and it's a theory that the drug you give them corrects it. I highly doubt that. I think it's more that it's a a psychoactive substance, so therefore it alters a mental state, and therefore it can help the person deal with the problem. Much like an antibiotic doesn't actually kill the infection. It kills some of the infection, so the body's immune system can do the rest of the job. Okay, That's why people without an immune system have to live in a bubble, you can't just give them antibiotics every day and they'll be okay. It's your immune system that actually does the job. So I think a psychoactive drug can help a person deal with that mental condition, but there's clearly something physically not working right. It could be dietary, it could be environmental, it could be situational. There's many things that can cause mental disease that is related to physical health. Obviously, if you have cancer, you have a disease. We have to treat that cancer by whatever means is best for that cancer. I'm not going to get into you know, alternative treatments, conventional treatments, things like that today. It's something you have to make a decision for yourself. But the, number, the funny thing is the number one way you can contribute to your physical health is the number one way that you can improve your mental and emotional health, and that is eat a good quality diet and get exercise. That is the number one way that you can see to your physical health. If you do not eat toxins and poisons and garbage, if you do not shock your body with tons of sugar, and I'm not saying everybody should be keto. I want to say something on that too. Like I think one of the reasons keto works so well for a lot of people is we've already screwed up our lives by eating too much sugar, and we've put ourselves in a state of pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes and being extremely overweight, and it's the easiest way to correct that and therefore get back down to a healthy weight. I think at healthy weight, there are people that can eat a carbohydrate-based diet, and if they eat whole foods only, and they don't eat garbage, and they don't eat toxins, they can be very, very healthy with that diet. People can eat a vegan diet and be very, very healthy. I think people can. I think if you took the vegan diet, I agree with the guy, I can't remember his name, but it was on Joe Rogan. If you took a vegan diet and you added some organ meats and, and shellfish to it, it might be healthier than, let's say, a carnivore diet, because it's more nutrient-dense. So physical health, it comes from diet and activity level. And that is the genesis of it all. And another Masanubo Fukuoka quote that for you is that food is not necessarily medicine. I will not remember the exact quote, but, but his point was that natural food is also medicine. But processed and synthetic foods can still be food, but they're not medicine. And if we're eating good quality whole foods, then our body has enough nutrition and an absence of enough toxin to maintain health on its own. Our bodies fit my definition. They are able to maintain the condition of health indefinitely absent specific catastrophic events. Flooding your body with too many calories and putting too much fat on is a catastrophic event. So we focus on that physical health, everything else begins to come in balance. The next one is spiritual health. And this is one that I think, there are, there are agnostic atheists, and I guess I need to explain that. An agnostic is not an atheist light. If you are a mentally balanced person, when it comes to the question of God, you are an agnostic. Agnostic has nothing to do with what you believe, it has to do with what you know. And the hope, and, and before you get your ass in a wad, if you are a person of faith and say, but all I know, no, you don't. And if you did, you wouldn't need faith. Faith is belief, absent knowledge, and proof. That's what faith is. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Didn't Jesus say something like, Blessed are those who believe who have not seen? Okay? Right? So mentally balanced people are agnostics when they fully understand the implication of the world. To be gnostic, which is the opposite of agnostic, to be gnostic means to have knowledge. To have concrete, verifiable knowledge. I know this thing. I know there's a 55-gallon fish tank in front of me. I know there's a microphone between me and that tank. I know there's a computer to my left and a computer to my right. I can touch them. I can see them. They're here. I am gnostic to these things being here. Yes, we can get in biocentrism and astrophysics and all kinds of crazy shit about whether they're really here or not, but you get what I'm saying. I do not know if there is God. I believe in God. I myself class myself as a deist, which means I believe in a God, a creator, a singularity of all thought, knowledge, energy, wisdom, thought. All right, That's what I believe. I don't believe in any God of the world religions. Maybe you do. But if you are a sane person, you are an agnostic. And if you are, let's say, a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Buddhist, you are what we call an agnostic theist. Okay, means you do not know that your version of God exists, but you believe that it does. Now, you can have compelling reasons. You can have even things you call evidence. But you cannot know in this life, and if you're a christian you should understand that your faith basically says god designed it that way so that you would have to have faith right so hopefully we've gotten through that so i want to say again now starting over spiritual health i believe there are atheists agnostic atheists that are more spiritually healthy than some people that are believers in a in a the- theology because spirituality is about you and how you interact and relate to everything else that is. That's true spirituality. If you're a Christian, then you see that through the lens of operating from your belief in God and salvation through Christ. If you are a Jew, you see it in your understanding of God and God's creation. If you are a Muslim, you see it primarily from an understanding of God and a submission to the will of God. Right. If you are a Buddhist, you see it more through a balance of multiple representations of divinity. If you're a pagan, you see it primarily through the earth and its systems as they relate to the energies of God and goddess. Right. All of these are forms of spirituality, but if they are apart from you as an individual, you have limited to no spiritual health. So the person that sees themselves as just a sinner, and I go to church, and therefore God said I'll be saved, so I believe that, may be actually very deficient in spiritual health if they don't actually practice and engage in their faith. Whereas the person that says, I don't believe in any God, but I believe in all that is, whatever that means, and understand that I'm part of it, and would take the time to sit on a mountaintop in awe, may have, now I'm not saying they're right and you're wrong. Don't get me there, right? This is a difficult topic to explain. I mean that their sense of spirituality their sense of self and its engagement with all that it is, might be healthier than someone that follows a practiced faith. That doesn't mean the person that follows a practiced faith. My grandmother on my dad's side was one of the most spiritual women I knew. She's Ukrainian Catholic and devout. For those who don't understand what Ukrainian Catholicism is, it is a sect of Catholicism. It does not fall under the Pope, yet recognizes the Pope. It's a weird thing. It's kind of a hybrid of the Greek Orthodox Church, and it's actually headquartered in Greece, not Ukraine. Um, And classic Catholicism and Judaism, it is really an interesting thing. And it carries the guilt of all three, the guilt component. And my grandmother would pray the rosary every night. And that is a state of meditation. Whether I believe what she believes or not, that is a state of meditation and it is incredibly valuable. I may choose a different way to enter a state of meditation, but that's what spiritual health is. Christianity has an incredible set of ethics and morality. There's some Christians I believe maybe don't follow their own rules completely. Um, and you know, when people say something like, well, when it comes to gay people, like, Well, you really shouldn't hate the sinner, but hate the sin. I haven't found anywhere in the Bible, in your book, that you profess to follow where it orders you to hate anything. It says, love your enemies even as you love your friends. So not only do you not hate the gay, even though you think the action is wrong, you have no compulsion whatsoever to hate the sin. In fact, you are called on to love the individual and accept them. And through your example, maybe they'll change. If that's what you really think, we'll see. I doubt it. But that is that is incredibly moral. And a grounding of your morality, which is I live my way because I choose to obey that which I believe, is incredibly powerful and can lead to incredible spiritual health. As a deist, I feel I'm incredibly spiritually healthy because I believe that there is some force of creation that unifies all Beings, In fact, all matter, all light, all energy. And that in some way, as I watch this beautiful fish swim around in front of me, I and that fish are one. You don't have to agree with that to understand that there is spiritual health in that way of seeing the world. And so I challenge you to work on and build your spiritual health in whatever belief system you happen to exist in, including, I believe, in nothing but science. And so I think, you know, I've already said that I think that a person that is a claims to be a Gnostic theist is mentally unbalanced. I think a person that claims to be a Gnostic atheist, meaning they know there is no God, is also equally mentally unbalanced. The only way that you can approach from a mental health and spiritual health side of things something that is unknowable is to accept that it is unknowable. And then you draw a conclusion based on what is available to you and you'll find what works for you. And I'm okay with any answer you give. All right? Financial health. This one's a lot more concrete. It's a lot easier to understand. Either you don't have a shitload of debt, and you can easily pay all your bills, and if you lost your job, you'd be fine for three months while you figured out what to do, or you're not. And then you only the only thing you can do then is, well, how strong are you? How close to an A are you? Or how weak are you? How close to an F? I would say that, An F is poverty. If you're not living on the street or living in a shelter or you're a 50-year-old man sleeping on somebody's couch and you don't even help contribute to the electric bill, unless you're there, you're not an F. But you may be a D minus. A D minus is you have some financial stability in your life. You actually can pay all your bills. But if you didn't have a job for a week, you're on the street. And a D is, if that goes on for a couple, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, you're either on the street or your life is destroyed. And sadly, that is where the majority of Americans fall. Majority of Americans have about a D. They have somewhere between a C- to a D- minus in financial health. And that's not good enough. Financial health starts with the elimination of debt. The elimination of debt. Now, I am not... Completely opposed to debt, okay, but I am completely opposed to most types of debt. A mortgage on a house, especially with a 3% interest rate, makes a lot of financial sense. We've talked about it before, but if you are in an agricultural business, financing an agricultural business with cash is the worst financial decision you can make. Because you'll pay ridiculous taxes versus no tax at all and you'll have less cash flow, and you'll have less money. I know it's stupid, and I can't go into it today, but I'm just acknowledging there are places for debt. I lease a car for my wife because it is the best financial decision I can make. Technically, it's a form of debt. It's not the same as collateralized debt. There's a little bit of a difference as to the way that I could exit the lease if I had to, but in the end, it's debt. I am obligated for a certain number of months to pay a certain amount. That's a debt. I have a debt to Toyota. All right. I have a reason behind it. But you know all these beautiful fish tanks, I don't have a MasterCard bill that comes in every month where I'm still paying for them. I don't have any debt like that in my life. And I haven't since before I started this show, so for 11 years. And I can tell you, there's never been a time where I was like, boy, I should get a Visa card and go get in a debt. I actually didn't have to get a Visa card. Um, Because rental car companies tightened up on their policies with debit cards and started costing me way too much money to to like enact my principle of not needing a credit card. So I got one, but all I do with it is rent cars and immediately pay the bill. In fact, I rent the car with the credit card, and when I turn the car in, I pay the card with a debit card. I pay the car. They'll let you do that. So there's never actually a charge. There's like a charge holding against, and then when you settle the bill, it goes away. Most, I mean, National does that. I don't know if everybody does, but I it'll never carry a balance. Um, income is part of your financial health. If if there's not enough income, then that might be the problem. Because you can say we'll get a budget, whatever. Like there is a certain income threshold that needs to be met so that you can live a reasonable, decent life in America today. You can only design down the lifestyle so much before you're not happy about it. You start to have other forms of health that suffer. So income may be a side of things. Um, you know who you work for, etc. Maybe a side of things that goes in occupational health that we're going to get to next. But that also may be that simply maybe you don't need a different job; you just need to work for a different place because then you'll have more money, right? And then it has to be balanced with actual occupational health. We'll talk about in a second. But balancing the financial equation, if you have like money, you could go a year without a job and be okay. Um. Do you have no real debt load except for maybe a mortgage? And you know, you look financially healthy, you can still have an underlying problem. If you're not investing in your retirement, maybe you're at a B, and the closer you get to retirement, you can look really, really healthy. Start moving into a C or a D. Because once you can't work anymore, that's a preparedness health thing that we'll get to in a second, but all of a sudden you're also financially unhealthy. So I'm going to ask you today to grade your own financial health and be strict. Whenever you grade yourself on something, you have to practice a little Buddhism. And, well, I, want to, I know, don't get worried. You're not going to you know, break a commandment or something here. It's a tenet of Buddhism, which is detachment. So when we judge ourselves, we tend to be overly harsh or we tend to be overly optimistic, right? So when we judge ourselves about our appearance, a lot of times we put ourselves down. We judge ourselves about our weight, we put ourselves down. But when we turn around and we start judging ourselves about more concrete things like our financial health, we want to give ourselves a B when we should get a C. Right? We get overly optimistic. So the way to judge all of these aspects of health is you have to separate yourself, kind of a spiritual thing. Separate yourself from yourself and say, if I knew a person, I'm Jack, right? If I knew a person in They were me, but their name was Mike. And they lived across town. And they didn't really impact my life at all. And they lived exactly like I did. And I didn't focus on that fact. And I simply judged their actions and their lifestyle and what they're doing. How would I grade their financial health? And then we can give an honest assessment of our own financial health, our own spiritual health, our own physical health, etc. Judge that financial health and work on it if you need it. Occupational health. You might think, well, that's directly financial. No, I'm not. The money is a separate thing here. If you work in a place where you literally hate where you work, you have two choices. You either change the fact that you hate it to not hating it, or you find another place to go. Or you will eventually destroy whatever you think of as your soul. It will make you miserable. It will make your marriage suffer. It will make your career suffer. It will make your lifestyle quotient go down. It will damage your emotions. It will damage your mental health. It will damage your physical health. It will damage your spiritual health. If you work in an environment that is truly soul crushing. So let's talk about the two ways to do this. One is to simply find a better place, a better career, a better path. Uh, I did a lot of that in my life. I, there was a point in my life where I said I would walk across the street for a dollar, meaning if I was making $15 an hour and they would pay me $16 do the same thing, I'd go across the street. made me feel better for a while. Eventually, I got to the point where it was like I will take less money to learn something I don't know how to do, to get more experience. That's when I made a major shift in my life at one point. I went from sales knocking down like over $200,000 a year to my first marketing position making 45000 plus a little bit of incentive. I only did it for seven months, and I was back at a six-figure income in the the profession I wanted to be in. It might have taken longer. I was willing to if it had to. In fact, if the opportunity didn't get thrust upon me, I would have stayed where I was for quite a bit longer because I was still learning. But occupational health is about going where it's best for you at the time. Occupational health is also about continuing to develop your skills and your knowledge which is also part of intellectual health, we'll get to next, but specific to your career opportunities. So if you're a computer coder, you do coding, and your job is easy to you, like you've been doing it a long time, and you are a a master of your particular coding language, you should be learning even like, well, there's there's no call for it at my job. If I actually do something beyond what they want, they get mad then you should be running your own little projects and teaching yourself another technology and another technology, another type of database management. You should be constantly, and it doesn't have to be, like, you don't have to be as good at it as you are at your main thing, but developing a lot of little bits of capability. If you ever lose that job, you're more resilient in your occupational health because it's a lot easier to get another one. There were people, when I worked with Neil Franklin, and we ran this huge um, corporate recruiting firm, and we ran contractors, over 2,000 contractors, all over the world. We had everything from guys that climbed up cell phone towers to guys that wrote code and everything in between. And we had some contractors that we got a lot of money for, and they made very good livings because they were the last people that knew legacy technologies that companies didn't want to let go of. And there was a handful of them, and they were dwindling. And there was a handful of opportunities for them. And some of them eventually we got to the point where, well, where's my next assignment? We don't have one. And they hadn't done anything to develop skills on the new technologies. And they ended up flat on the ground. It didn't matter they had 20 years of experience. They had 20 years of experience doing things that most of our clients had no interest in doing anymore. And they had to start from zero to develop new skill sets. And it certainly wasn't something we could do for That's an example of occupational health, developing those skill sets. A healthy network, which goes into social health, right? Right? Um, And emotional health. Because emotional health, let's pull back to that one for a second. We were kind of quick on it. Emotional health is about the ability to have and maintain relationships, so emotional health allows for large networks of people that you can actually talk to that actually care about you. There's plenty of people with huge Rolodexes, and they have a contact information they can at least get through on the phone. But that person, like if somebody walked up to them and said, hey, you know Tom Jones? Hey, which Tom Jones? You say, explain, oh, yeah, yeah. Like if that's the response, yeah, he's all right. That's, that's not real useful in a network. Like a network with strong emotional health built into the occupational component. Do you know Tom Jones? Oh, Tom is awesome. Why? Are you talking to him? Because if I could hire him, i Like that's gold for your occupational health. If you have references that that like what you do so much, that they literally are jealous that the person they're talking to gets to work with you because they can't make it work to have you come where they are, You can write your own paycheck going in the door. That's strong occupational health, but it's built off emotional health. It's built off relationships that leads to networking that goes, see, all all this back feeds into each other. The next is intellectual health. Now, again, there's bleed over. So if you're a computer coder and you're learning new programming methodologies, I would call that intellectual health, and I would also call it occupational health because it directly applies to your occupation. But intellectual health is the person that might be a computer program, but they know how to build an aquaponics system. They may get into some place where they can write something for a company newsletter or be part of a corporate initiative because of aquaponics, but they're probably never going to have a job unless they go off on their own with some sort of a business venture that has anything to do with aquaponics. But their intellectual ability will be higher from understanding that particular form of growing food, managing plants, the biology, the chemistry, right? the agricultural component, the systems thinking, the troubleshooting when something goes wrong. like All of that will actually make them a better computer programmer, but it really has its own side intellectually. Intellectual health, people that are truly intellectually healthy are modern renaissance men, modern renaissance women. They, they might have a specialty or three, but they're also a jack of all trades. And when they don't know how to do something... They may not ever feel compelled to learn that one thing, but if they feel compelled, they can. In other words, you know, um, quoting an old 80s movie, I don't know how to synthesize a methyloid alkaloid, right? Or I think that's what he said, right? Um, love potion number nine, for those of you who don't know their movie history. Um, but I don't need to. But if I needed to know how, I could learn. And one of the, one of the greatest things I've ever said, I can't remember the guest, but he was an unschooler that was on our show, wrote a few books uh lived up again like New England, Maine, somewhere like that, a lot of agricultural stuff, was unschooling his kids. And when we were talking about school and like without the regimented institutionalized program that, that Masanuba Fukuoka in our quote today said has no intrinsic value. Well what if you need to learn how to do something that you never learned in school? And what he said was when I need to learn something I will then learn. The humans learn what they need when they need to. Now There's extremes, and I hate people that always have to play a devil's advocate instead of understanding the broader picture. So I'll say, you know, it would be a good idea to learn to swim before somebody throws you in the water, because you may drown before you learn. So there's acute things. But if you knew that you wanted to learn how to swim, then you would embark on a journey to learn how to swim. If you knew that you needed to learn some sort of complex higher mathematics, then you would take whatever understanding of mathematics you had, and you would build on it until you got to that level of what you needed, right? And that is how intellectual health is best understood. The capacity, and I almost called it capacitile, because I'm talking about the word for capacity, capacity health. Your capacity to be able to adapt to individual situations, gather information, and then be able to act on it. That's intellectual health. Broadening your intellectual health is reading 15 to 20 minutes a day. Breeding itself develops more of the brain and causes the brain to function better. But whatever you're reading, you're also learning from at the same time. But don't think that you know, the ability to learn, the ability to read, the ability to process is not related to physical health. As we switched over to keto, I have to tell you, it was a couple weeks ago. My wife came home, and she watched a documentary called The Real Skinny on Fat. She watched about 45 minutes. It's about two hours long. It's a really, Montel Williams is behind. it. It's a really, really awesome documentary. Well, she watched about 45 minutes of it, and she told me verbatim, she's like, we should watch the whole thing together, and I'll start over, but here's what happened. And she told me, 40, like, the first 45 minutes, it was like I already saw it. She was that spot on to the key points. Now, if I do that, nobody blinks. My wife has never had that ability. She's like, I cannot understand how you can read something and listening to something different at the same time. Because I'll be there on my computer you know, answering a customer service email on my laptop while she has something on the TV. And she's like, well, you're not paying attention to this. And I'll say, yes, I am. And she'll say, well, what's going on? And I can tell her everything was just said over the last 15 minutes, even though I wrote five emails in that period of time. She has no idea how I'm able to do that. I don't know how I'm able to do that. But she can't even look at the one thing. And then she'll know what sort of happened, but to be able to go through and like present it. So to be able to watch a presentation and then stand up and give a presentation, that's something that I've been gifted with, been able to do my whole life. Maybe great in sales. Go to a company training, guy gives a presentation. Okay. I'm good. Are you sure? Yeah. Here, let me present it back to you. My wife can do that now. My wife, I mean, I was like, she missed nothing. And she said it's the mental clarity she has because we've improved our physical health. Again, they all dovetail into each other. So work on the intellectual health and grade yourself on it. Preparedness health. What does that mean? I, don't think, I mean, A lot of these, other, if you look up articles on types of health, you'll find the, people's versions of these. I've not seen anybody with preparedness health. And I think, gee, no wonder our nation's screwed. And no wonder our nation always runs to government for protection and support and safety. Because... If you're completely unprepared for anything to go wrong, then you need lots of safety nets, big ones. In fact, you don't even want a safety net, you want a hammock. Because one of the problems in our society today is we talk about the social safety net. So well when people fall, they need a safety net. Well, you know, let's talk about what a safety net is. When people do trapeze, they use a safety net. So the chick gets up on the trapeze and she gets going really, really fast. And there's a guy on the other trapeze, and he's waiting to catch her. And she does like a triple backflip, and she sticks her arms out, and they grab each other's arms. And they swing back and forth, and he swings her, and he throws her ass, and she flips around and grabs the thing and goes back. And that's the way it's supposed to go. And people work lots of hours for most of their lives to get so good they can do that. And it looks amazing at the circus when it happens. But every once in a while, even the experienced person, they reach out and they grasp, and there's nothing but air. And our lovely lady falls into the safety net. She is probably highly trained and she probably won't get hurt, but she could break an ankle or a finger or lots of things. Like, the safety net does not guarantee that you won't get hurt. It reduces the probability and it prevents the catastrophic splat because the fall doesn't kill you. The sudden stop at the bottom does. That's why we call in the military a falling injury. We don't call it a falling in- injury. We call it a deceleration injury, Alright? Because it is a sudden deceleration that gets you, right? So that's why the safety net's there. So when our lovely lady lands in that safety net, the first thing she does is get out of it and go back up to the to the uh, trapeze. And if she's injured, she goes and gets treated. She works on her physical health. Maybe she goes through therapy. She gets back up. That's a safety net. The system we have in America is person falls or is born into the so called safety net and spends their entire life on it. Now it's a hammock. That is a direct result of a lack of preparedness health in America. People that are prepared for things to go wrong do not call on the government to be there for them and hold their hand. And they do not shy away from being the hand that picks up their neighbor. They are the first people that when things go wrong, let's say there's a storm, once the storm passes and they bring their household to a basic system of order, they're the first person that starts knocking on the neighbor's door. Is everything okay over here? Is everything? Is there anything you need? People that are preparedness healthy, that's their first result. I get people, generally, they're like socialist nuts. A lot of times they're also vegans. It's crazy how that goes together. On Facebook, that refer to me as coming from a, a viewpoint of scarcity. Right? And that it's all about me. And I don't know about personality thing, but that's what I'm teaching. <laughs> This is the furthest thing from what we teach, as those of you that have been part of the show a long time know. We teach from abundance thinking. There's plenty. And at a time of plenty, it's time to be a good ant and store things up and be prepared and think about the things that can go wrong and put a preparedness plan in place for all the things that can go wrong. It's a combination of stuff, procedures, protocols, and knowledge. We put that together. If this, then that And that's basic preparedness. And we don't all have to be like big time, you know, one year worth of food survivalists to have good preparedness health. A person who is prepared for the power to go out for a week, prepared for not having a job for a month, prepared for um, a storm or a fire or whatever happens to be able to basically put their life back together, and has a plan in place, is actually thought ahead, they, they, they can be a straight A on their preparedness health. They might not be what the wild eyed survivalist says is prepared. They might not be ready for the, the blue helmets to come from the United Nations. There's, oh, the, the, the stupidity. Like, I had just talked to Fernando Aguirre, I had him on last week, Fairfowl about how he said, you know, the the total traffic in the the survival space is lower. And he asked me if I had noticed much of a decline in traffic. And I said, no, I I haven't really, not at all. it be, but I'm really diverse. I'm not just in that niche. I'm in, you know, health. I'm in entrepreneurship. I'm in preparedness. I'm in agriculture. I'm in permaculture. So it's less. And He said that all the people he's talking to basically it is down from where it was at its height, about from twenty oh about 2009 to 2014. Huh. Wonder why. Anyway, um. But the one thing we had found that we both were really appreciative is the crazies were gone, right? The, the, like we just both were not running into crazies anymore. Well, Beto O'Rourke made his, his, his friggin' statements about grabbing your guns, and immediately I saw articles about the United Nations is training people to come take away America's guns. Uh, you need to work on your mental health if you're, you're, you're diving into that. That is not preparedness health. That is a mental health problem, not a preparedness health virtue. Preparedness is the ability to maintain or regain stability when things go wrong. Next is your environmental health. And and environmental health is highly overlooked, and it's something that we need to think about. You know, are there toxins in your home or your workplace that you're not thinking about? Environmental health has overlap with physical health, because is there toxins in your food that you you think you're eating healthy but you're not? The total exposure of your environment, physically and emotionally, again, because it all dovetails. Um, You know, you need to really look at your home. And what are the products that you use when it comes to cleaning your house? Some cleaning products are hot. Now, I'm not saying everything has to be, like, blessed by permaculture virgins or something to be safe to use, okay? Uh, We use some conventional products for certain things because they're the best thing for it. But, man, you know, like, do you need to be using harsh chemicals all the time? And the answer is no. What are the, the things that you bathe with? What are the soaps, the shampoos? Toothpaste use, like all of that's part of your environmental health. The water you drink, while it directly impacts your physical health, it's an environmental consideration. So it's impossible to be mentally, physically, and emotionally at a minimum healthy if you have truly poor environmental health. Your occupational health has some things to do with the environment there. The work environment, but also the chemical environment. Are there things about your workplace that are unhealthy? Are there things that you can do where you can't eliminate it, but you can take things into consideration? You know, when you do some sort of work and you're using a solvent, you use a mask as, as, as an example. Whether it's at work or at home, doesn't matter. And we really should spend more time looking about what is our total environment for health. Also things that don't directly affect us but can cause us to be... Um, make bad health decisions for ourselves. So for instance, a lot of people try to eat really good, but they insist on that they're for some reason their children eat tons of junk food. And what they say is, well they won't eat anything else. Hunger always fixes that. It'll suck for a week or two and they'll shut up and eat what you give them. But you know, if you have Cheetos and Pop-Tarts and all that crap around all the time and you don't you don't you don't use it, you don't eat it, It's only a matter of time before, oh, I'll have one, and next thing you know, the bag's gone. That's an environmental health situation. You're putting something in front of you that you know you shouldn't be consuming, and you're allowing it to be there, and you're allowing it to be a disruptive force in your life. So that's part of environmental health as well. Um, The way you act has a lot to do with environmental health. If you have to cross a street that's busy every day, you know, crossing with the light at a crosswalk, looking both ways makes that environment a lot safer even though there's risk to it. If you have a drive to work where there's there's lots of wrecks, you know, wearing a seatbelt, having a safe car, doing good maintenance, not becoming like an idiot when you're driving and, and being too aggressive, all of these things make it more likely that even though that environment is an issue, that you're more suitable to the environment that you have to deal with. That's environmental health, so grade yourself on your environmental health. And then the last one is what I call adaptive health. And it would be really easy to confuse with maybe preparedness health. So, But I mean it much bigger than that. I mean, and it, it actually dovetails into emotional and mental health. Your ability to accept that which you cannot change in the serenity prayer. That's your adaptive health. When people say there's a problem, I always have a question. Can you do something about it? If the answer is yes, then do that thing. If the answer is no, then don't worry about it. Now, I know that's easier said than done because the problem might be, well, I have a yield sign in my spleen and I'm bleeding out. And no, I can't do anything about it. And no, there's no doctor going to save me and I'm about to bleed out and die. Okay, if that happens, you can worry about it. But this is back to circle of concern, circle of control that we talk about all the time. I'm upset that Donald Trump said or did something. Can you do anything about that? No, then don't worry about it. I promise you that will contribute to your emotional and your mental health and your spiritual health and your physical health and probably long-term your financial health and your occupational health, certainly your intellectual health and your preparedness health and your environmental health because you'll make better decisions about how you deal with your environment if you're not worried about things that you can't fix. And so adaptive health is also when you do get knocked off course. And you do have a corrective action you take, but that means that your life changed. Can you adapt to it? So that would be, you have a really beautiful house. You have pretty good financial health. Major downturn in your sector. You lose your job. You have to sell your house. You have to downsize. You get back on your feet. And it becomes apparent that you're probably never going to have that type of house you used to have again. Can you accept that? and go forward with good mental, spiritual, and emotional health in that environment. If you can, then you have strong adaptive health. Now, if you have a hard-charging attitude of, I'm going to get that shit back anyway, and you do it out of belief in yourself, that's okay. But if you can't say, well, for a time that I'm living this way, that's just the way that it is, then you have poor adaptive health. If you're given a piece of bad news... It doesn't really destroy your life, but it makes you unhappy, and you can't cope with it. And it derails you from doing the things you should be doing. You have poor adaptive health. I recently came to a long, drawn-out, eventual acceptance about a family member of mine. One of the few family members I still had hope for. And it sucked. And I'm not going to get personal and explain it all to you, but it sucked. It sucked to know that it is that bad. But in the end, I'm me. I have my life and my family that I love. That other person is that other person that deals with their own shit their own way. I do not control them. So once what was needed to be said had been said, and the way back into my life had been laid out, I'm done. I've adapted. My life is just as good as it was before that happened. In some ways, it might be better. That's strong adaptive health, right? That is the ability to accept that which you cannot change. It is probably one of the biggest weaknesses in America today, and it goes to all of this social justice crap, all of this triggered crap, all of this offended crap, because it's a la- what it is is a lack of adaptive health, and. Anything becomes weak when it's not exercised. You don't, if, you get, if you fall into a coma and you lay in a bed for three months and, and they give you everything you need to maintain your body, but you don't walk, when you come out of that coma, it's going to be very difficult for you to walk at first. You're going to have atrophy of your muscles. you have to learn to walk again and build up your stamina, even though maybe you didn't even lose that much muscle. like Certainly not enough to not be able to walk, but you didn't exercise it. Well, adaptive health is the same way. When we remove the need for people to exercise adaptation, they become very weak in their ability to adapt. And this is why when somebody hears something they don't like, they scream, it's it's homophobic, it's racist, it's whatever. Instead of just going, oh, that person's a dick. Screw him. right? Here's my thing. If somebody's saying something, if they don't have any authority in my life, I don't give a shit what it is. I don't care. That's strong adaptive health. If somebody does have impact on my life, then my biggest concern when they're doing something I don't like or affecting me, how do I figure out how to make this not my problem anymore? And once it's not my problem, if it's still a problem, if it's not my problem or a problem for somebody I love that I feel I need to protect, I don't give a shit. I don't care. I'm done. I did what I can. Now it's on you. People are dying in this country. People are dying every day in every country. I have no control over that. And even if I want to help, if I want to be charitable or I want to be an activist, I have to pick and choose where I can be an activist. I can't do it everywhere. I can't do everything. I can't write a check to every charity. I pick and choose and then I go on with my life. And when somebody tells me something terrible happened, oh, that's 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 terrible. And I genuinely feel for the people going through it, but I also feel like, okay, I've done my thing. I've done my part. I've done what I can. I have people that I need to take care of, so they're never part of the burden on others like these people are now. Whether it's their fault or not doesn't matter. I'm not saying it's their fault. That's adaptive health. Adaptive health is you get bad news and you go on with your life. Adaptive health is you go to work and they say, uh, we're having a meeting Everybody get in the break room, and they hand out pink slips to half the workforce and say, we have big layoffs, we're sorry about that, bye-bye now. Financial health is what gets you through the mechanics of that. Occupational health is what gets you the new job. Mental and emotional health is what prevents you from going into depression because of it. But adaptive health is what makes you go, huh, so I get the rest of the day off? Is that what you're saying? Okay, bye. Maybe, maybe if you know you have a good relationship with your boss you're getting a re- letter of recommendation on the way out the door but basically you're like, hey guys, you know what? Um, well actually half of you people that got laid off are dicks and like you deserved it but like you four people, you four guys look man we, we had a good run together and I really like you and and Tommy, even though you're staying like dude see if you can get off for the rest of the day and uh, I'm buying a, a couple rounds of drinks we're gonna to go to the bar. And if you really need, I'm going to provide an Uber for you to get home so you don't, you know, we don't want to make a bad situation worse. Your wife can take you back and get your car tomorrow, but we're going to go have some drinks and we're going to relax. And, and we're going to talk about what, we're, what we've done and what we're going to do next and how we can help each other. That person has adaptive health. That person also doesn't stagger out of the bar unable to move because they drunk themselves stupid because of it. But they just actually celebrate ah, this is the end of an era, right? This is the end of the chapter. I'm going to celebrate this before I move on. That's strong adaptive health. Adaptive health is, X happened, ain't shit I can do about it, Why is my next action. And that is the number one thing that we can build in America today to restore true greatness in America. Like, we're not going to make America great again with a tariff. We're not going to make America great again with a wall that's actually pretty easy to climb, apparently. We're, we're not going to make America great by by telling some people they're great and telling other people they suck. Um, what made America great was the, the concept that we talked about in the military. We, we called it improvise, adapt, and overcome. This shit happened, so here's what I'm doing about it. Not this shit happened, I don't like it, so somebody else fix it for me. Not this person said something I don't like, so I'm going to scream and yell racism until they have to shut up. Not I'm going to run to a safe space or hug a kitten or color a book as a grown-ass man or grown-ass woman. Like That is complete lack of adaptive health. But before you mock those people, understand that health isn't a, a thing that's a switch. It's not binary. It's not on or off. It comes in degrees. You can be relatively healthy but still have a disease, a disease in any aspect. You can be relatively financially healthy but have some areas where you're weak. You can be relatively healthy from an emotional standpoint but have areas in your life you need to work on. Right? You can be physically very healthy from a standpoint of, we think more of like athletically healthy, but you may have a weakness that you need to work on. A lot of guys have really big biceps and chest and they have bird legs. So they, they, they have a, 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 they're muscularly weak in their lower body. I've seen a lot of bird leg guys in gyms, you know? No calves, no quads, big arms, you know? I don't know. If you like skinny jeans, I guess that works, but. I don't think it's really a good balanced approach. So we can have weaknesses in any aspect of health, and still have relatively decent health. You can have relatively decent adaptive health. You may not run to cry in a cry closet whenever somebody says something you don't like, but are you truly adaptive? So I've seen so many people in my life that should be adaptive. They actually have most of their other aspects and and good. One of my old Army buddies, my buddy Brad, who I did a show about Eeyore, right after I spent a weekend with this guy trying to put his life back together because I like, I was so covered in negativity. I feel like, I felt like I literally needed a shower to get his negative off of my body. And I did a show as part of that cleansing of that negative aura, right? Um, no adaptive health. Guy loses a job. He hated the job. He had talked about quitting the job for six months. He called me when he lost a job. He sounded like he was ready to eat, eat the barrel of a shotgun. Like, hey, man, I'm going up to my cabin for the weekend. Why don't you come spend a weekend with me? And I basically verbally beat the shit out of him for a weekend to try to get him out of his stupor. Two weeks later, he got a better job. Two weeks. like, You're highly marketable. You have lots of experience. The market's great right now. You didn't lose your job as in, you know what, you really suck, we hate you, and we never would have you back. You lost your job as in, we really don't need your position here anymore. So you have a good story. It's not like you suck. you just going to get another job. Oh, no. Right? That's poor adaptive health. So that's that's the cornerstone that lets all the rest of this work. And, again, they all work with each other. So I would like you just off the top of your head, and then think about it, but off the top of your head right now, give yourself A to F a grade for each one of these. Emotional health. Mental health. Don't cheat. No one knows except you. Physical health. Spiritual health. Financial health, occupational health, intellectual health, your preparedness health, your total environmental health and your adaptive health. Later on when you get a time if you don't have time now, sit down and write that list down. The notes are there again today is episode uh, 2516 and write your grades down and then assign a numeric value to each grade just like they do in school. an A is a four, a B is a three. C is a 2, and so on. Add them all up, divide by 10. Say I did 10, so it would be easy math, right? Even Common Core could do it, right? And what's your GPA? If your GPA is not at least a 3, if you're not at least a B student in your lifestyle health, you need some serious work. And the place to start? All the places that are C's. Let's not try to push our B's to A's. Let's try to push our C's and D's and F's up to B's. Because health is balance. So the places that you're the weakest are the places to begin. They're the ones you're going to want to do the least for. But I have to explain that this is a lot like imagine you have a really big truck. And it, but even though it's a really big truck and it's, it can carry a lot of weight, it's overloaded. And Each one of these aspects of health is adding additional weight to your truck, and it can't even move. But if we get a little bit more emotionally healthy, we can knock off a weight. Now the truck will barely move. But because the truck's barely moving, we can do a little bit better, and we can take our mental health and knock another weight off. And the faster that truck can go down the road, the more inertia we have when we shove a weight off. That's what this is like. Every single one of these. And any one can get heavy enough to almost stop the truck by itself. And any one can be such a burden that it literally almost reaches out and grabs one of the weights you thought you threw off. Like three threw off, three reaches out and grabs six and puts its weight back in the truck. So we have to balance how we divest ourselves of these burdens and make ourselves more adaptive more mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, occupationally, intellectually, environmentally healthy. With that, we've wrapped up another show. I hope you enjoyed this. I know it's a bit of a different one, but I think that this really is a great show to add to the lifestyle design section of the show. And if you like shows like this, remember I tag all the episodes. You can go and pull them up. And lifestyle design has some amazing shows that we've done over 11 years. Uh, now that we're wrapping up, I want to remind you guys one more time, Workshop is going on sale Saturday. Check the website. Make sure you're ready to sign up. It's going to come and go really fast, and it's going to sell out. Also, if you want to support the show, one of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. You shop from t It doesn't matter what you buy. You help us no matter what it is. You're probably going to buy something online this week, So just start at TSPAS and see if you can find it starting there. And as long as you do that, you help us. Our item of the day today is part of my fertility regime, which grows the best vegetables you will ever grow, the most carefree vegetables you ever grow, the healthiest vegetables you ever grow, the most balanced vegetable garden you will ever grow, is using my full fertility program. Um, The cornerstone of it is Dr. Earth Premium Gold Organic All-Purpose 444 Fertilizer. I'm bringing it around again today. Because it's September. And for a lot of you, you don't need it right now. You're about to put your gardens to bed for the winter. But a lot of you are going to run your extended seasons now. You're going to plant some coal crops. Maybe you've already got your broccoli or kale in for your fall crops. You're going to throw row covers out and extend what you already have. Um, you're going to keep things around longer. You're going to grow stuff something, grow through the frost until you get to the heavy freeze, whatever it is. And you've run your garden all year. You've been through the heat of summer, the stress of drought, and your plants have taken up that nutrient. And if you really want, you've got to think of it like the marathon runner who's on his last mile and grabs that glass of water so he can make that last mile. Think about it like that. Recharge those nutrients. This is one of the most balanced fertilizers I could find. If I could find a better fertilizer than Dr. Earth, I would use it. This is the gold standard, pun not intended, Dr. Earth Premium Gold. You can find it on the on my website or you can find it at tspaz.com. And remember, if you want to make sure you get updated to all of the stuff that I do on the website, subscribe to the Daily Mail. All you got to do to make that happen, go to the website, the Survival Podcast.com, click on subscribe, fill out a form. You get one email a day from me. If you ever decide you don't want any more, just click on subscribe. It's that simple. And um, if you ever want to go to my website, and you're like, duh, survival is so long, Jack. Tspc.co. That's a short URL. And I should remind you there is an iPhone and an Android app that you can download to listen to the show and get all of our information as well. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with the song of the day today. Song of the day today is we continue Blind Singers Week. Uh, every artist featured this week is uh, Vision Impaired. And today's is Ronnie Millsap. And the song is Smoky Mountain Rain, so you don't have to wait for it. But I want to tell you a little bit about Ronnie Millsap. This dude is an amazing success story and a pretty amazing guy. He's in his late 70s now, I think. Late 70s or early 80s. And he's still making music. Uh, But this song is very old. This song is from 1976. And those of you that are maybe 10 years or more younger than me, you do not know how big of a song this is this was this was one of the first true like what they call c- country crossover songs now that ends up on both the country and the pop charts. It was a number one country song and another a number one like contemporary adult or something like that basically pop music at the same time that isn't even really an understanding of how big a song this was up until the mid 80s. If you put on a top 40 station, whether it was pop or country, this song was in regular rotation for like eight years after it came out. That's how big the song was. So it was a hell of a hit, and it really made Ronnie the success that he is and became. Probably made him a ton of money, too. Ronnie didn't start out with a lot of money, though. Um, Ronnie was born with a congenital little defect, and that's where he lost almost 100 percent of his vision. He has, well, he has like a tiny amount of vision, but you might as well just say he's blind. And his parents abandoned him. He was raised by his grandparents till the age of five, and eventually was put into a state school for the blind and made a ward of the state. Along the way, he developed a love for music and became the music phenom that we know him as today. The, the, you know, best-selling. Crossover country pop music artist with an incredible talent for writing and playing and singing music, but he's also a philanthropist and an activist. So, I have a link where you can learn more about all this stuff, but on Wikipedia. But here's an example of that: It was a Capitol Records protest. Millsap recorded in a song in 2009 called "My First Ride." as a fundraiser to benefit firefighters and police officers in the United States and Canada. The song featured Trace Atkins as a guest vocalist and 70% of all the proceeds are donated to the fund. After the song's initial release, however, the Nashville division of Capitol Records, which Atkins was an article uh, an artist on its roster at the time, Reneged on a promotion without explanation. On September 24, 2009, Millsap and a group of Tennessee firefighters and volunteers picketed the Capitol Nashville office because of the company refusing to service the record to radio and iTunes four weeks after its release. Millsap marched with a group of 50 people to the front steps of the office and then sang the new single, From Atop a Vintage Fire Truck, The demonstration was peaceful, and after the performance, the group was asked to leave by building security. Millsap said, he said, we came to raise awareness about this worthy cause. What record label wouldn't want to be part of raising metal for the much-needed fund that helps firefighters, police officers who desperately need it? Now, see, this is an actual protest. A lot of things that people did, they are not protests. People think they're protests. What they are is acting out and being an asshole. This made Capitol Records look stupid, and eventually it worked, because if you want to fix what a a company's doing, make them look stupid, draw attention to their stupidity, and be nice about it when you do it. Here you go. Ronnie Millsap, born with a congenital defect, became blind, by the way, born in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, right where this song's about, abandoned by his parents, raised sort of, kind of, by his grandparents made a ward of the state and going to a state school from the blind, becoming a best-selling musician. This is the kind of thing that really is the American dream. And if you want to make America great again, if you really believe in that type of phraseology, more of this is what we need, a belief that no matter where you start out, you can do something really amazing. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I found out those bright lights ain't where I belong From a phone booth in the rain, I called to tell her I've had a change of dreams, I'm coming home But tears filled my eyes when I found out she was gone